Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I welcome you back to week two of the beginning of our fatherhood series featuring Dr. Lee Gettler. As I covered last time, we're going into just a fraction of what he has done in his work. And so without further ado, let us dive back in. I'm just curious, but would you expect to see potentially a slight drop in testosterone in those older years when those fathers have to kind of become teachers? Because it seems like it's that teaching link that almost includes, whether it's the social context or proceeds, a bit of it for the patients to teach, the, (laughs) you know, ability to kind of... (laughs) (laughs) set realistic expectations for children. So would it potentially be a different profile where when that relationship becomes more teaching or connectedness that you might, would you hypothesize that or am I just completely speaking ignorantly? No, I don't. So here's what I would say. I bet that if we looked well, there's a couple of, this comes back, they, those families in these, and particularly in the farming community, the families tend to be really large. So it would be hard to find a dad who like, whose youngest kid is in that kind of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 age range, um, who doesn't also have a much younger child. Um, and let, until they get, <laughs> until they themselves are older, and then you're talking about a different kind of domain of physiology. So, um, the, I, I think we're more interested in the hypothetical question here. Um, what, what wouldn't surprise me, you're going to get, you have a range of variation in men's testosterone there, right? I mean, so men who are, I mean, so one of the things that I, that we can talk about um, is marital conflict in these two societies. And I would love to talk about that kind of in these societies and cross-culturally, but what I've kind of laid out is among the Bonongo farmers, the dads who are seen as the best dads, the best providers have the highest testosterone. But, and that, that is beneficial for kids. But one of the other things that's valued in terms of father's roles in families is generally trying to avoid conflict with their partners, with their spouses. And in that case, the men who have the highest testosterone are, are more likely to have conflict. And we know that among kids in the Bandongo society, if they're in families where there's lower conflict, um, we see that their stress-related physiology measured through a few different ways, including immune system function, but also um, uh, some measures from epigenetics, that kids who are in families with more conflict are basically more physiologically stressed, right? And so... There are some positives that are linked in with higher testosterone in this context, and there are some negatives um, in terms of kind of the family system and what that means for children's health and well-being. But part of the reason I'm pointing to that is we see a range of variation in men's testosterone between men um, in both societies. And it wouldn't surprise, I don't know if we would see that on average men's testosterone will go down when they transition to this point where they're more involved with kind of teaching tasks um, and, and spending time helping kids learn the skills they need. But it might be the men who have relatively lower testosterone who are more effective in those roles. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, so I think that that's, 
And that, you know, again, in the, in the neighboring Bayaka, where that teaching role is something that's more explicitly talked about um, as a core role for fathers, we see that it's linked with lower testosterone. But again, two very different cultural systems that are kind of, I mean, they, you know, they live side by side with one another, but they're socially and culturally very, very distinct. So if I can, I, I'd like to jump to the marital conflict bit because I, this did surprise me. Well, it didn't surprise me that higher testosterone was linked with more marital conflict in some ways, but why? Like, what is the link? Like, is it more testosterone leads to more marital conflict? Is it, again, a cycle where it depends on where you get dropped in that the marital conflict leads to greater testosterone? Is it that reinforcing cycle that goes on there? Probably. Um, so maybe I can lay the, the quick groundwork here. So in I, I've been talking about this work that we do in the Republic of the Congo with these two neighboring societies with very distinct systems family uh, systems of family life and cultural values around the, the roles for fathers um, in both societies. Part of what people express in terms of kind of what a good father is, is a father that uh, a husband that avoids conflict with his wife. Now, what's interesting actually is that in these two societies, marital conflict is, I would say maybe more intense is the right word among the Bandongo. Um, where I, it's more common for there to be kind of more aggressive verbal and physical conflict. And it goes be, both between, um, between both partners among the Bayaka, there's kind of, it's not that it's infrequent, but there's more, I think, cultural mechanisms to attenuate it, like where others will kind of intervene to help subdue the situation. But we see the same pattern in both, which is men who have higher testosterone, um, are, are ranked by other people in their community as having more conflict and fighting more with their, their spouses. And in the U.S., um, you see pretty similar patterns. Again, um, doctors Darby Saxby and Robin Edelstein have done good work on, on a few different projects related to this that are complementary in the sense that they have found that when men and women are in relationships and their partner has lower testosterone, this is Robin's work. Um, the partner is more committed and satisfied in the relationship. Um, and so, you know, looking at re relationship commitment and satisfaction is a little bit different than looking at conflict, but you can, the two are linked obviously for obvious reasons. Um, and then there's been some good, there was a, there's a, a pretty famous study that actually is an, is an important um, longitudinal kind of precursor to the work that we've done on fatherhood um, that was done by um, Mazur and Michalek on um, military personnel, a very large study um, in the 90s. And they found that men's testosterone was higher around the time they were going to get. So men with higher testosterone were more likely to get divorced. So they followed them sequentially over 10 years and higher testosterone precedes the likelihood of getting divorced. But then around the time when divorce is going to happen, testosterone's up, right? So it speaks to the idea that testosterone is likely linked to behaviors or emotional profiles 
that contribute to conflict and to the potential for kind of relationship breakup. Um, but I think is also consistent with the idea that around, particularly if you're in a relationship that's highly conflicted, that that might also be eliciting higher testosterone. Um, so why I think is a, is a question that I'm not sure we totally know the answer to one of the things that I would strongly suspect there's two things. One we've found and others have found, and we've talked about this extensively already that fathers who have lower testosterone in settings like the U S are oftentimes more involved with childcare, but also other tasks around the home. And so in married couples, it would not surprise me if, that link contributes somewhat like where if there's a more equitable division of labor in the household that likely reduces conflict. Um, I, to my knowledge, no one has shown that. So I'm speculating, but that wouldn't surprise me if that's part of it. An additional contributor I would suspect, um, is empathy. And, um, you know, we know from other researchers that, Lower testosterone um, in men, particularly, is oftentimes linked to kind of more empathy or more better empathic functioning in um, reading others' emotional uh, needs um, and social cues and things like that. And so I think that's probably an important contributor to this, would also be my hunch um, is that, and I also think having more empathy or, or being more empathic. It makes sense that it would be important to a close relationship with a partner. I also think it's important likely to these links between lower testosterone and, and more sensitive and nurturing engagement in childcare um, with children, because that connection with empathy doesn't, you know, it's not just adult to adult relationships. It's also important across the board, I guess. Um, and so those are two areas that I think potentially um, contribute to this. You know, I, I, it's also possible in terms of why might conflict elicit increases in testosterone if that's part of the equation. And again, I don't think we have a good, a really good read on what the kind of temporal or time-based relationship is in terms of what is driving what. Um, but I think there are a few things. One, so I, I mentioned this study, uh, this large study of military personnel that found that testosterone's higher after uh, what, it, if men have higher testosterone, it precedes their likelihood of getting divorced, but it also is higher in and around divorce. Um, and again, that kind of makes sense evolutionarily that you know if you're in a relationship that is close to ending, um, and you're likely to be going back out to pursue other partners that high testosterone, that your testosterone might ramp up and to, to kind of help facilitate that um, orientation towards, um, you know, competition and trying to compete for the attention of, of new partners. And we found the same, a pretty similar pattern in Cebu um, with our most recent data. And again, Stacy Rosenbaum is the lead author on this paper, but um, showing that men fathers, even if they had relatively young kids, if they were separated from their partners, that their testosterone was, was back up. 
um, and was higher than men who were um, in partnered, higher than fathers who were in partnered relationships. So I think there's probably, in terms of how we conceptualize kind of the, the psychobiological links that connect into higher testosterone, there may be something about the social volatility of conflicted relationships and anticipation that that might be ending that may be linked in with why the body is is upregulating testosterone under those conditions but hopefully someone will do a longitudinal study that they can kind of start to try to disentangle some of these um, aspects it's fascinating to me because the link with fatherhood as you said you know the children in the the farming community where high testosterone was linked to better parenting or better fathering pardon me but mm -hmm. also more conflict and we saw the stress Mm -hmm. In those kids, too, they were still highly stressed, which I know is a finding we see here is that, you know, conflict within a home is a childhood ace. It's, um, mm -hmm. you know, that that's one of the things that comes up regularly. So for, you would think, though, that from a, a parenting perspective, that conflict would then necessitate worse perceptions of parenting. Right. Or am I just jumping ahead there? Because you know, when you see that conflict, if you're not feeling safe as a child mm -hmm. and you're experiencing this, what kind of perception do you have of your parents in that, in that environment? Yeah. May have to, I, I may have to think about that for a minute it, and we'll see if I can talk while I do that. Um, <laughs> no, you can, you can just take it and leave it. You don't need to. I'm just thinking about that from the perspective of a child. And I know you said, you know, you, one of the goals is to start talking to kids mm -hmm. about their perceptions, which I think will be fascinating because, you know, other people's perceptions, as we know, I mean, even in the United States, other people's perceptions of good parenting do not always reflect what the child feels is good parenting. And I mean, down to a basic level, I remember a great little quote from someone once shared, it was on Twitter of, you know, my, uh, it was either the mom or the daughter. No, the, the mom shared with the daughter, you know, there were times when you were young, I just, I phoned it in. I felt so, I feel such guilt that there were these times we would eat like craft dinner for dinner and eat it in front of the TV and blow, you know, I just didn't have it in me. And the kid was like, but those are my best memories. That was like the best time of parenting, which is, you know, these perceptions don't always match what other people yeah. would look at that and say, oh, that's not a very good mom, you know, doing that. But from a child's perspective, it may be deemed very, very differently. So I do yeah. wonder how conflict plays in because children's perception of conflict, you know, especially mm -hmm. as we see it in the psychobiological realm of that increased cortisol and reflection of stress. I'd be very curious to hear how they've interpreted that, whether they see it as separate or whether they see it as part of the parenting as well. Yeah. So I think I have, I have a few, I do have, I, I do have a few things um, that I think are worth highlighting. One is that again, and, and I, I know I've already said this and it's, I'm sure it's clear given my background as an anthropologist, but I mean, one of the things that really fascinates me is, you know, how do we see variation in the biology of fatherhood being expressed across cultural contexts? You know, in, the U.S. and Cebu, it's it's linked in with hands-on childcare. In the Bayaka, you see some of that, but it's also really strongly linked to this role as of for fathers as sharers of resources and and generous 
welcoming members of the community. And then it's very different in the Bandongo where the, you know, being a good dad is, is competitive and risk risky in some ways because of the, the things they have to do to acquire resources. Um, but then you see this pattern with kind of spousal and partnering relationship quality and conflict that seems to be linked to testosterone pretty consistently across different, very different ecologies and environments and cultural contexts, right? So that's just interesting to me as an anthropologist where in some cases, the cultural model of parenting and fathering is incredibly important to the biological signatures and correlates of it. And then in other cases, there's more uniformity. And so I think the reason I want to bring that up is because in the two societies we work with in Republic of Congo, so I've already talked a little bit about how the Bandongo kids are, we see physiological signatures that they're stressed by parent conflict. Well, among the Bayaka, where they have much broader support systems because of cooperative caregiving um, within the community. And so you could make the p- prediction that Bayaka kids might not be as stressed by parental conflict because they have this broader cooperative care framework that we think is really important, that has been really important evolutionarily, right? That this was really critical to the evolutionary success of our species. But that's also not the case there. Those kids who are in families where there's more conflict also have higher cortisol um, in very similar ways to what you, you know, you've described for families in settings like the U.S. Um, and so I do think um, it speaks to the ways that kids maybe have – I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase it – they're that there, there is at least some kind of uniformity in terms of how kids experience that kind of um, maybe unpredictability, but also, um, you know, a, a, as a source of emotional and social threat, which we know activates stress-related physiology. And, you know, among the Bayaka, it's not uncommon um, – both because divorce is is culturally acceptable there. Either partner can initiate divorce. So oftentimes mother, you know, adult men and women are moving between relationships across their life course. um, And that's culturally normative. And unfortunately, because of adult mortality, um, sometimes kids are losing their parents. Um, It's not uncommon for kids, you know, to live separate from one of their parents. Um, or to not have either of their biological parents. And despite the fact that there may be some culturally normative aspects of that and that the kids get supportive, nurturing caregiving from lots of other individuals in their community, they still worry about their, losing their parents. Like in the sense of if their parents are in conflict, the kids know that that could lead you know, them to separate and they experience it as stressful. And, and my, my colleague, Dr. Shana Lou Levy, um, you know, in, in the way I'm contextualizing that I'm kind of relying on some of her ethnographic o- observations, but I just think it's something that's really important that as anthropologists, we almost, we very, very commonly emphasize the diverse array of, of ways that cultures kind of solve the caregiving problem um, and engage in cooperative caregiving. And that, 
you know, cooperative care is much more common in its breadth and depth in many other cultures than it is in the U.S. and um, kind of Euro-American context where the nuclear family is really emphasized. Um, but nonetheless, we still see this kind of stress-related signature of for kids uh, when they're experiencing conflict between um, their caregivers, their parents that they're really that they're really emotionally invested in. And it, I will say that doesn't surprise me. I think you brought up the best word, which is threat, is the, the threat of losing a parent. I mean, that's survival right there. I mean, you may not recognize as much as there are other people that may care for you. Um, you don't, I guess, from a biological level, you don't know you're necessarily being born into that, right? Not every culture has it. And so the variability is you have to be able to respond to that particular threat. So it, it isn't surprising. Um, it's, you know, it, it kind of leads me though to, to the question that I think we touched on very early, which is this intergenerational transmission of parenting, mm -hmm. because that kind of experience is, I think, you know, we certainly look at it in our, in Western, like US culture as having an effect on how we grow up, kind of the adults we become, how we engage in other relationships. You see the patterns, how you parent going on. But what you find with your fathering work is that there is a very interesting um, intergenerational work there um, that involves both mothers and fathers kind of in that relationship there. So can you tell us kind of what you have looked at with this? And what you found for kids, because you now have these different generations. And I think this goes back to the work in the Philippines, right? Where you had these kids in utero and now they're parents. So what, what is the intergenerational transmission of fathering? Because I think we think it's really big, right? I, you talk to people and at least in our culture, the common idea is, you know, you're going to parent like your father did. And that's going to be, but that doesn't seem to quite be the case. Yeah. And I, well, and I think there's also baked into this a little bit is also partially the idea that I'm going to do things really differently than my own parents. And then you actually end up becoming your parents more so than you would have envisioned. Um, but yeah, so going back to the, uh, the work in the Philippines where we have, you know, 35 plus years of data in this multi-generational um, longitudinal study that's incredibly rich. Um, and this is going to, I think, touch on some of the conversations we were just having about what is attachment or we don't have attachment data, just to be clear. But, um, you know, we have some measures that I'll talk about that are giving us some very rough approximation of kids' perceptions of their relationships, which we would interpret through attachment theory. Um, but what we looked at is how involved were the, so going back to the early 80s, so we're, we're thinking about men um, who are fathers in their uh, mid-20s, we're going back to when they were kids, and how, in, how involved were their own mothers and fathers with childcare? Mothers are the primary caregivers there, as they are um, in virtually every culture around the world. but in the Philippines, you also get a, a lot of alloparental cooperative caregiving. And 
it is not common. It's becoming more common, but it, it has not historically been common for kids to go to like a paid daycare or a preschool. So they're being cared for primarily, um, you know, by family and close friends and their parents. Um, and so we're going back to the early 80s, looking at how involved their parents were with um, child care when they're pretty young, when they're in their first couple of years of life. And then we have a measure um, from them later when they're early teenagers in terms of the closeness of their relationship with their parents. And so one of the things that I would like the listeners to bear in mind is this is a really great example of an incredibly rich study that wasn't designed to answer these questions at all. So we're kind of making do with what we have. This is not a prospective study that was designed to do what I'm trying to do with it. Um, but so you, in an ideal world, you probably wouldn't look at the how much childcare parents were doing in the first couple of years of life and then only have this one measure of how close kids felt to their parents when they were teenagers and then try to put those together. But that's the best we could do to try to answer this question. And there's been almost, there's very few studies that have looked at the intergenerational transmission of fathering. So that's really what we are, we are trying to get at here. And so what we did is we looked at whether um, the involvement of parents, um, and we were particularly interested in fathers, but we were also looking at the early effect of mothers um, how much childcare were they doing? And did their, did the boys as teenagers feel like they were close to their mother, um, not close to their mother, close to their father, not close to their father? And so what we find um, is an is a effect of both parents, but what, we're, what we see um, particularly for um, mothers is if boys had moms who were really involved with childcare, but they didn't end up feeling close to them, um, then the dads end up not feeling like childcare is a particularly important part of how they think about themselves as fathers. And if they had moms who were not very involved with childcare and they weren't close to them, then they report that caregiving is more important to them. So. That is what we, you know. Developmental psychologists would kind of describe as like a, a compensatory effect. That kind of last finding, um, and we see pretty similar findings for their relationship with their own dads. Where um, and what's more interesting, your listeners can't see me, but I know Tracy can see me. But I'm making an X with my hands because I'm going to describe what's called a crossover interaction. But it makes an X in a graph um, for the for their relationship with um, their own dads, if they feel close to their dads, and this is where some, this is probably the finding that I think is um, most interesting to me, although I think actually quite a few of these different components are, are important to how we think about the intergenerational effects of um, caregiving and its recapitulation or divergence. But if kids, if boys, had dads who are not very involved with childcare in the early eighties. And then they, but they felt close to them nonetheless, then they tend to not be as involved with childcare themselves as dads. And they don't feel like caregiving is particularly critical to their identity as parents. Now, I just want to point out, this doesn't mean that they're not invested fathers. It just means that in terms of hands-on caregiving, 
that that's not how that's basically not the role that they're carving out for themselves or how they think about themselves as parents. On the other hand, if boys felt close to their fathers and their dads were relatively involved with childcare. And remember, I mentioned this earlier, but dads are not doing very much in the early 80s. So this is like a pretty low bar in terms of how much childcare these dads were doing. But if the boys had dads who were relatively more involved with childcare and they felt close to them, then those men, those boys grow up to be fathers who are more involved with childcare and who feel that that's more important to their role as a father. It's more important to their identity as a parent. And then the flip side of that, if they don't feel close to their dads, it looks really similar to what I described for the moms. So I won't kind of go through all of that again. But what I think is really important about the boys who felt close to their dads is, you know, you can have a, a dad in this context in the early 80s, who's doing almost no childcare. Like when I say they're not involved with childcare, it's very likely that that means that the moms reported that they were doing zero minutes of childcare. And nonetheless, you know, years later as adolescents, many of those kids, most of them feel close to their dads. And so it's possible that as they got older, you know, and they weren't in that early intensive infant and childhood phase that the dads were doing more childcare, but it's not very likely because that's just not the role for dads in that context during that time frame in the eighties. And so I think it, it, it's consistent with the conversation we were have, having earlier that we need to continue to develop better ideas about how kids or better understanding of how kids perceive their relationships with their parents and how they're developing what they see as a close relationship with them. I mean, these are these are kids whose dads, at least early on, are doing no childcare, but they see them as having a close relationship and an important relationship with them. And then they model their parenting behavior after their dads in adulthood because they see their dad as someone who's worthy of emulating, right? And then in contrast, you see boys who grew up with dads who are doing at least some childcare. And if they felt close to them, then they're even more involved with childcare and adulthood and they feel like that's important to them. So I think it's really consistent with the ideas that um, I think are critical as an anthropologist that there's one, there's not one single set of pathways through which a close relationship can be developed between a caregiver and a child. Um, and also for fathers that there's not a singular way to be an involved and committed dad. Um, and that kids can develop healthy relationships with parents through lots of different kind of channels. It really struck me those findings that it seemed to come so much towards connection. Mm -hmm. Does that like, it seemed like that was kind of the crux of it, that if you feel close, then you're emulating, you're copying, you're, you're really have that sense of you're going to kind of follow in the footsteps but yet if not, if you don't feel close, it seems to be the attempt to closeness is what you're trying to create. Because when they weren't close, it seemed like they kind of went the opposite of like, no, I'm going to become more involved. Does it speak to, I mean, I guess all of this intertwines with the conflict and everything is that are we driven to seek connection? with others with this and that, you know, lacking it in your childhood, you are going to try to compensate for that lack in your own parenting. But if you have it, you know, you're going to end up doing 
what worked because you had it. So it's kind of keeping the status quo going. Yeah, I mean, I think without question, um, I mean, humans are, you know, motivated for closeness and close social relationships, right? That's, it's just fundamental to um, who we are as a species. But also, I mean, even going back, you know, phylogenetically more distantly to primates, I mean, there's a, a famous quote that gets thrown around by anthropologists and primatologists all the time that like a lone primate is a dead primate because <laughs> almost universally they're group living species um, with some exceptions. But so I think that motivation for closeness is definitely part of it. And I think you described it well where it's, yeah, if, if they have a close relationship, um, then that when we're talking that the vertical dimensions of, of, you know, parents and caregivers and kids, then that closeness tends to drive a sense that this person is a model worth emulating. And I, that's the way that that relationship was constructed is worth recapitulating. And at least for some, for some of these fathers, if they lacked closeness and they didn't have in they and they didn't have much time with their caregivers, either their mother or their father, um, then yeah, they're motivated to diverge from what they experienced and to um, provide a different experience and to maybe seek out that closeness with their own child for that reason. I mean that a lot of the attention in this literature that tends to be more focused on mothers and daughters than um, sons with what, whether with mothers, um, or dads it, are this other group of, we don't really know. So like, I'm looking at one of the graphs right now for the, the boys who experienced lot, had relatively more time with their dads, um, when they were kids, but they're not close to them. And a lot of the attention in this literature gets focused on that group that type of group where it might, it might be the case that that involvement was not healthy involvement. Um, I don't know that for sure, but there's lots of other studies, you know, that have been done by folks in the U S from kind of a developmental psychological perspective that have tried to specifically look at that question. Um, and how do you intervene to kind of stop a, a cycle of recapitulation of negative experiences? But I think, um, and so I, I, even though we can't specifically address that with these data, I think what we're talking about is, is some of the more positive aspects of um, recapitulation and then diverging to do something different that maybe involves cultivating a more positive experience between the parent and child and the next generation. So I think that's, that's really important too for, for all of us to be aware of in addition to trying to intervening to um, ameliorate more negative contexts. I have to ask a question because I don't know if you have this, but it dawned on me as we were talking about this. I didn't think about this earlier, but from a psychobiological perspective, would you expect, so you have, sorry, I have to get my brain working here and <laughs> I had <laughs> gestures to try and help. You have your group of boys who had closeness with their fathers, but their fathers were not involved. 
mm-hmm. and they were not as involved as fathers, kind of the emulating that. Mm-hmm. What happened to their testosterone? Because in their mind, they were kind of fathering as we might expect um, a good father. They're, they're emulating good fathers, mm-hmm. but do they get a psychobiological effect in terms of or not? I don't know. I, I'm asking so, you. <laughs> I know. Um so my, I'm working on this. I've been working on it for a long time. It's just taken a very, very long time to get the data in the right place. I mean, the, the paper that we're talking about, I published two years ago. So I kind of have been working on this question since then. Um, and, you know, my, if you don't mind, can we put a pin in it until the next time I come talk to you? Because I know Absolutely, once yes. we get... Um, once we have some more of our new data from the Republic of the Congo, I know our, our plan is that I'll come back and chat with you about some of that of course, and more yeah. from my child development um, and physiology perspective. But uh, there is, there does seem to be some kind of predictive, I like to use the word signature, predictive signature of these early experiences on men's testosterone in adulthood. And I'll kind of just leave it generically there. But what's interesting to me is it doesn't seem to be explained by what they're doing themselves as dads. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. That's a pin. I'm coming back to that one because, (laughs) and I'm glad to hear you're actually looking at it. I asked, I didn't know. Sometimes I ask questions, people are like, I have no idea. And (laughs) maybe we'll know in 10 years. So the fact that there's actually an answer forthcoming is quite exciting. So I've kept you so long, but do you have time for, for one more question here or do you have to run? I do. I can answer one more. I okay. Can I say something quick? Yeah. I, usually I try to weave this in somehow, but I people might be um, curious. Sometimes I get the comments of like, you know, it's not all testosterone, right? <laughs> um, and so I, I think one thing is important for people to know who maybe not may not know about um, some of the methods and, and lab protocols and things like that that we need to go through to get these kind of data particularly from more remote locations like our work in um, republic of the congo um i think they're so testosterone's a, a really reliable um marker in saliva right and especially for male bodies the levels in saliva are really really highly correlated to what's circulating in the blood which is actually what we really care about and it's highly correlated to the unbound component in the blood, which is what can cross the blood brain barrier for so. So for someone like me, who's really interested in the behavioral, cognitive, emotional effects of a hormone like testosterone, it's important for it to be able to get back into the brain. So there are some really practical reasons that um, testosterone is, is easier to look at than some of these other hormones. But like we have also looked at prolactin in the Philippines and we found that men, um, who are partnered fathers have higher prolactin. This is when they're 21 um, than men who are single non-fathers. So kind of mirroring some of the patterns with um, testosterone, but you can only get prolactin from blood. And so when I was a graduate student, we went through this whole process of, um, I I had one of my mentors was a brilliant lab person, much more so than me. And he helped me develop this protocol to take a lab approach that was designed for whole blood um, plasma actually, 
And to translate that to dried blood spots, so kind of like if you pricked your finger and just dropped a blood spot on these specialized filter paper cards. And it took us a really long time to validate it. I got my data for my dissertation, and then they stopped making the kit. And no one, since then, no one has been able to get that to work again with the kits that are available. So no one is really looking at prolactin in these remote field sites because you have to take whole blood samples to get it now. And so that involves a whole other layer of complexity, right? In the field and ethically and all these things. So anyway, I, I kind of, I don't want to go spend too much more time on that, but um, I just wanted to mention that, yes, I know that testosterone is not the only hormone that's probably important for this. And um, we have looked at other hormones. I've also worked with oxytocin, um, you know, like, like my, some of my colleagues like Ruth have. And um, yeah, we're interested in lots of other signals, but um, some of it, particularly for we anthropologists working at remote field sites, there are kind of logistical constraints on what's possible for us. Thank you for bringing it up. It's something I talk to other researchers about too, because limitations in research are real. And I think there is sometimes this idea that you're supposed to conduct the perfect study. When I hear people dismiss research because, oh, but they didn't have this, this, or this, I kind of want to pull my hair out. Cause it's like, well, yeah. Do you know how much that, that, and that cost? Do you know how practical right. that, that, and that is? It's, mm -hmm. you can't always do that. That's not how it works. So you take kind of like you mentioned with the longitudinal study, it wasn't designed to look at this intergenerational transmission. You've taken it for that. So is it going to be perfectly designed for that? No. Does it mean none of it is helpful? Absolutely not. It's incredibly right. helpful. And it helps, you know, lead fields forward, because then maybe someone will start making those little things again that allow you to get the blood splatter. But you know, yeah. we need that first before it goes. So my last question here, because it came up in, in one of your other papers, is that we talk about this lowering of testosterone. It sounds lovely. It's, you know, this, this sensitive parenting and everything. Yeah. But it's not risk free, as you yourself point out, that there are actually health implications of lowered testosterone. So, like, especially in Western cultures, we see mental health risks, physical health risks. So, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm probably missing a key piece of the puzzle here that you can hopefully explain. Um, so, what why might we see this in such an important role where we wouldn't want greater risk to a father? Like you mentioned, tying it back into children's threat of losing a parent is a real cross-cultural seemingly reaction to, to something like that. Their stress is a reaction to that. So what, what's happening and why would that be the case here? Mm -hmm. Darby Saxby did one of the best studies of this in the US in fathers. There's other folks, lots of other folks who work on low testosterone as a risk factor for depression and depressive symptomology in, in settings like the US. And that's, that's a pretty well established finding. And low testosterone actually for men as they age is a risk factor for a lot of um, other types of chronic conditions, um, including like cardiovascular disease and things like that. So this is a very real concern in the US. And one of the things I'll, um, so I'll talk about the depression link first, and then I can talk, we have a paper that we published a couple of years ago that we effective or um, affectionately referred to as, a, as the dad bod paper. So I can talk a little bit about that one. So Darby's work showed that for men, 
with young families, if their testosterone was lower, they had reported higher depressive symptomology. But if their testosterone was lower, their, it was protective against their partner's depressive symptomology. So that just adds another layer of complexity. And, and actually the mediating variable for that last finding with their partners was through relationship satisfaction. So it, it jibes really well with a lot of the other things we've already talked about, which is that lower testosterone on average in men in a lot of, in numerous cultural settings is linked to kind of healthier functioning relationships with partners, but that doesn't take away the, the risk factor for men, right? So I know one of the things you, you wrote in your question for me was whether this is a mismatch like, would this have occurred evolutionarily? It's really, imp I mean, one of the benefits of looking cross-culturally is we can start to see what's kind of culturally specific versus kind of pan-human. And I don't, there's not enough data on this across different types of cultural contexts to know. But I think we have some hints. So we see it in the U.S. with Darby's work. And then we, I, I published a paper with my colleague Raul Oka at Notre Dame using um, data from NHANES, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. But that's a, a study that's run by the Centers for Disease Control um, from the U.S. government, and it's nationally representative. Um, and so we found, so Darby found that men, fathers with lower testosterone, more at risk for depression. Um, we found that there was, um, this was moderated by so, uh, socioeconomic status. And so what I predicted would be the case was that lower SES fathers with lower testosterone would be more at risk of depression. And whereas men who are higher SES would be more buffered because they have all these other aspects of their life that buffer them from depression, like having adequate resources and things of that nature. And it was actually, we found the reverse. So we actually found that men who were higher SES, lower testosterone dads were more at risk for depressive symptomology. And the guys who were most protected against it were the higher SES, higher T dads. So that is interesting in itself. And, you know, I could talk a little bit, if you want, we can loop back to that. I can talk a little bit about how we kind of interpreted that in the discussion, but I do think it lends itself to, um, and then among lower SES individuals, it was actually higher T dads who were more at risk. And then there was all sorts of other interesting patterns for the non-fathers. But again, I think it speaks to the, the contextual nature of this is part of the reason I'm bringing this up. And because those are two of the only studies that have looked at this issue of testosterone and kind of parenting status and depression in, in US-based studies. We looked at it in Cebu, in the Philippines. And this was work that we did that also combined um, a genetic marker, a genetic polymorphism that relates to the androgen receptor. So the receptor that testosterone needs to bind to to have an effect in the body. And essentially, there's kind of a range of variation for this genetic polymorphism, but if you're on one end of the spectrum, when testosterone binds to your receptor, it's going to have less of an effect um, on the um, cell in question. And if you're on the other end of the spectrum, it will have a more 
um, accentuated effect. And so what you would predict is that the men who have lower testosterone and the polymorphism where testosterone has less of effect through the receptor, they would be most at risk. And we just didn't find that. So it's always kind of fraught to interpret those kind of findings where there's not a statistical relationship because it could be due to other issues. Like they're not being enough statistical power, but it suggests that that relationship doesn't seem to hold in the Philippines in the same way. And then I have another colleague, Dr. Ben Trumbull, who's at Arizona state who works on a really long or a, a really large, rich study called the, um, in short, we refer to it as the Chamane study, but they work with a, a, a Bolivian South American indigenous group um, known as the Chamane. And what Ben found was they collected, um, there was a really bad flood um, for these communities and um, a large part of their livelihood comes from farming and horticulture. And this flood destroyed lots and lots and lots of their crops. And so they, uh, Ben and his team went in to try to help, um, help them recover, but also collected some saliva samples while they were there to try to understand kind of the health related ramifications. Long story short, the, the men who had lower testosterone in the context of this really kind of catastrophic flood were more at risk for depression. So that's, again, under very specific contextual circumstances. Would that translate for Chamane men outside of that context? I don't, we don't know. But again, so just highlighting variation in, in this relationship and kind of the, that, that's about the extent that we know about this across different types of ecologies and cultural contexts. So part of me suspects that we think that this ability to downregulate testosterone is tied in with the evolution of human fatherhood. Um, and, you know, humans are so distinct from our closest relatives and the extent to which um, fathers are involved um, and committed often and typically to their children, even though it can come in all these diverse forms. And so we think that this biology was selected as part of the emergence of invested fatherhood and cooperative caregiving. And so if it's underpinned by a complex suite of genes and it emerges through developmental exposures, you know, through some of the, the channels that we talked about and there probably is epigenetics involved. We know that from work from rodents like Francis Champagne and Michael Meany's work. My point is you're going to have a range of variation between men in terms of their phenotypes in whether they're going to be likely to downregulate their testosterone when they become fathers and how low it's going to go. And as a consequence, some men are going to carry biology because of their genetics and epigenetics and developmental experiences where they may be predisposed to their testosterone going too low to, you know, uh, what you might call a subclinical threshold or a um, clinically low level, I guess, in a setting like the United States. So that just might be individual variation where the overall 
phenotype of having lower testosterone in a context like the United States is generally beneficial and probably was in many societies and communities in the evolutionary past, but there's some men in each population who are more susceptible to their testosterone going too low and that being linked in with depressive symptomology. The other component that speaks more to the mismatch side of this is um, one, I think there's in the, in settings like the U S the cooperative care and community support of families is much less. You know, some families get great support. Some families, you know, nuclear families live near kin and have really supportive communities and neighbors and things like that and get the support that they need. Um, but I would just say there's a lot more variation here and oftentimes a lot more families that are more socially isolated and maybe they get support for a short window of time and then it kind of, they're kind of on their own. And in some ways there are kind of cultural values around it ties into kind of the autonomy and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps aspects of our cultural perspectives in the U S but there just is less support in a setting like the United States for families. And especially for, I think fathers are expected to just carry on and compared to what you see in a setting like the Bayaka where it really is a community endeavor to support families and raise children and families there have much more support than we would see on average here in the U.S. So it wouldn't surprise me if that social support and community support plays a role in some fathers in, in the U.S. end up with, you know, particularly low testosterone. But if they were in a setting like the, the Bayaka culture where there's more support, that that might not be linked into depressive symptomology. Um, and then I think there are other aspects of culture here that may make it more likely for this to be expressed. Um, and one aspect of that is just um, physical activity. So we know physical activity can be pr protective against depressive symptomology. And in for most of the evolutionary past, um, part of day-to-day -day life was extensive physical activity. And in at least in some forager societies, what we see is when families have a young baby, um, mom's ability to acquire resources for the family generally goes down because of the intensity of the needs of the baby and of breastfeeding and things of that nature during that, that immediate, immediate infancy window. And Frank Marlowe showed among um, Hadza communities in Tanzania that, that fathers actually um, upregulate their productivity output and how hard they're working to acquire resources to kind of compensate for the fact that mom's resource um, acquisition goes down. So that's just one idea. I mean, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm pinning all of it on. If we just got dads to exercise more in the postpartum, they wouldn't be at risk of postpartum depression. That's silly. But I mean, I think thinking about things like that in terms of what are some of the ways that their requirements and kind of social and physical environment of being a parent in settings like the United States are very, very different from the way this um, biology would have been expressed in the evolutionary past is a critical part of thinking about these questions. It's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating because you mentioned all those things and it reminds me, well, not reminds me because I've never seen it, but makes me think of like a, a seesaw with like not just one side going up and down, but, you know, eight 
pronged around where everything's trying to balance and you just one goes out and you know in other cases you might have something balance it out okay your exercise up so that creates this overall beneficial in another one it's social support in another element it's just this multi-pronged thing that it's all trying to maintain some level of homeostasis and we just have things that don't always work there so Ali, I can't thank you enough. This has been so enlightening and so wonderful. You are an absolute wealth of knowledge, which I'm sure, I mean, given this is what you do, you should be, but it is, it is so great to hear all of this. And um, I just, I'm, thank you so much for coming on so much for talking fathering. Are there any last thoughts for um, anyone becoming a father anyone trying to navigate fatherhood um, or anyone raising boys for the next generation of fatherhood? Well, I mean, I think, I guess it probably isn't a big surprise that I get asked all the time, like what, what should men make of this? Um, and particularly the, the fact that their testosterone may be going down. Um, I mean, I, there's a, obviously a lot of cultural narratives about what that might mean and it gets heavily conflated with masculinity but the the thing that i know even though we've talked a lot about testosterone and again i want people to remember that there are other signals in men's bodies that are responding to this transition and um you know men who are partnered to women who are going through pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding recognizing that there are a diverse array of family forms and way people become parents. But, you know, for many men who, who are seeing their partners go through those processes, those are really substantial physical changes that are observable and obviously come along with their own biological changes. And I think it's just long been assumed that men were just along for the ride and, um, you know, didn't have any capacity to respond to those transitions and to respond to their babies in ways um, that are kind of biologically based. And we know now that that's just not true. There's, um, we have substantial knowledge about the way that men's bodies can respond to the transition of parenthood and to help facilitate their involvement um, from the earliest moments with their babies. So I think that I hope that men, I guess, um, take that message from this um, and kind of continue to push back, um, like feel confident in their own capacities, but also push back against narratives that treat fathers like they're incompetent um, and, um, you know, not as capable or lacking in, you know, I don't want to say instincts, but, you know, lacking in biological capacities to respond. Um, we know that there are, these mechanisms within human bodies um, more generally that allow us to engage in these relationships. And so I, I hope that that's comforting and motivating and encouraging for um, families. I would hope it would be. It's the, you're not the babysitter, you're the father, right? That's that right. for too long, that kind of gets treated. Well, Thank you so much once again, Lee. This I, I can't wait till next time with all the findings, both from the Congo and that little pin on what's happening with testosterone there. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy, for having me. It was a great conversation. That's it for this week. 
and I do believe that Dr. McKenna was right in his praise of Dr. Gettler's work. Join me next week as we continue our fatherhood series and move towards a discussion of black fatherhood, but specifically how it's approached in research. Joining me is Dr. Erica Bachneck, who's working to reframe the way we approach the questions we ask and the answers we seek. It definitely provides some food for thought. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.